Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, it's still hot here. How about where you are? You know, if you live in the States, uh, well, you're hot right now, no matter where you live. I know when I lived in Florida and Texas, uh, well, it didn't seem to be much of a problem because everywhere I went was air-conditioned. But uh, out here in Southern California, we seldom get very many hot days. And, well, I don't have air conditioning here to uh, hide the fact that global climate change is not only real, it's uh, also here to stay. And speaking of here to stay, one of the reasons that these podcasts from here in the salon are staying around is due to our fellow saloners who make donations to help offset some of our expenses. And to that end, I would like to thank Kaylin S., Holger W., John P., and Wes Z., all of whom have made donations this month, bringing the total number of salon donors this year up to 52. It's a small but a very elite group of fellow saloners who are the backbone of these podcasts, and I thank all of you from the bottom of my heart. Now, I realize that some of our more dedicated Terrence McKenna fans are going to be mad at me again for cutting out the part of the talk that we're about to listen to where uh, Terrence was using a computer to display his ideas about what he called the time wave. But as I've said before, you can uh, go to psychedelicsalon.com and on the podcast page, click on the category link for time wave and you'll find about uh, 10 other podcasts where he spoke about it. Also, uh, the part that I cut out today has uh, very little in the way of information in it because he was talking about what was on his computer screen without any explanation of what he was looking at. And uh, without the visuals that went along with his time wave presentation, it, uh, it wasn't very easy to follow. Now, for our newcomers here, uh, while I do believe that there is still some merit in some of Terrence's ideas about novelty and its ebb and flow, as well as uh, with his thoughts about the nature of time... Nonetheless, uh, in my opinion, his mathematical version of the time wave with its uh, absolute end date of December 21st, 2012, well, I can no longer agree with it. And uh, yes, I have to admit that a part, uh, maybe even a large part of Terence's appeal back in the 80s and 90s was his predictions about the uh, end of the world in 2012. But uh, so as to not throw out the baby with the bathwater, I have nonetheless included here uh, parts of his thinking about time and novelty that uh, led to his time wave idea. Now I'm going to try something a little different and play two brief sound bites from the talk that we are about to listen to. And my reason for doing so is to make the point that Terence McKenna's thoughts and opinions have not lost their shine here in the 21st century. Think about the current U.S. election process as you listen to this. I think that this perestroika thing is totally unwelcome in the Western democracies because we're running a skin game. I mean, we could use free elections. Free, free elections are when you don't have federal subsidies for parties which have to have millions of members to qualify. I think, based on the time wave and based on reading the newspaper, that the great stumbling block now in the formation of a sane global agenda is um, 
religious fundamentalism. You're going to hear that again in about 40 minutes in context of uh, Terence's talk. But now let's start at the beginning of this talk that was recorded in December of 1989. That's right. Yeah, we had samples that were five years old that were absolutely terrifying to take. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, I, I got into trouble. It was one of those situations I had to a curandero friend, Don Fidel Mosambite in Pucalpa, and he had given me this bottle of ayahuasca as a going-away present, and I had kept it for like five years. So in five years, you, you forget what the details are, and I got it out to turn myself and these two other people on, and I couldn't remember whether he said, always shake the bottle or never shake the bottle. <laughs> And there was about an inch and a half of sediment in the bottom of this thing. So I said, well, reasoning pharmacologically, it's better to shake it than not to shake it. So I shook it furiously. And then uh, I can't remember what it was. I think I had taken it the week before, a different batch. So I thought maybe I'd picked up a little tolerance so I said, well, maybe I picked up a little tolerance. Let's just go, instead of the normal 100 milliliters, let's go for 120. And so then I instructed these people that it would come on in about an hour and 20 minutes and so forth. Well, 15 minutes into it, they were both unable to speak. And, uh, you know, it, it, it went from there. I mean, I felt like I was strapped on a gurney being rushed through the Egyptian afterworld. huge... <laughs> colonnaded pillars were streaking past me and oh god headed for the scales so you do always shake it I don't know man I don't know that one felt that was a lip buzzing one I felt that that was coming close to overdose it went on for a long long time and and finally, four hours into it or something, we turned on some lights and there were those fan-shaped little schmiggies. Well, I hadn't seen those since I gave up LSD ten years ago. You know, those little things that with the lights on or on the walls going, that bit. So it was pretty, it was pretty intense, I, I think. The great thing is, you know, you, all, you always come out of it in great shape. Ken's right. You feel better the day after than if you hadn't done it, which is what drug can you say that of, you know, that the end result is an energy plus. Uh, Was there like a, a peak point to it? Well, see, I think that we're on the edge of ayahuasca and that what, this, what, the, what they say, if you really get down with them, is that the diet is everything, and that you're a tourist, and you're here for a few weeks, and yes, we'll give you ayahuasca, but what this is really about is controlling diet over a period of months, even years, and taking a regular regimen of this stuff, and transforming yourself into some kind of other person, and Ken's very right. The, these people have some kind of authenticity that you can absolutely feel. It's in the voice. 
I met many ayahuasqueros, and the good ones all had this voice thing going on that they could cast their voice way back in their throat, and they kind of purr, and they just are very realized beings, and they have nothing. You know, I mean, you talk about marginal, but there's real authenticity there. I would like to go back and... uh, and work with this diet and try to understand this because I think, see, this all does tie in with what we talked about this morning about the partnership society in Africa and that whole bit because I think this ayahuasca thing is the last living remnant of this kind of way of relating to nature because in the heavy ayahuasca-using societies, these people are saturated in this stuff I mean, as Ken says, three times a week. And it's really changing how they look at the world. And they are, you know, in empathy, at equilibrium, aware of the ebb and flow of appropriate energy in the situation. So it's interesting to me, you know, that in the new world, a human group could have reestablished this partnership paradise in a situation, an environment, which quite closely parallels the African situation of 20,000 years ago. In other words, it's a continent covered by forests. And in this extremely floristically rich environment, these people have gotten together the, the fix, the fix, so that humanness feels good. And isn't it interesting that the fix turns out to be not a drug, but a shifting of the ratios of neurotransmitters already present in the organism, as though, you know, we're just out of tune. We have evolved out of tune. There's an enzyme problem that has caused us to fail to suppress the ego, and then this creates a spectrum of cultural effects that drives us all nuts. And, uh, and so they have a kind of psycholytic therapy to... To correct that. Do they think of the world beyond the, the locality where they're living? I mean, oh yeah, they claim to know all about it. I mean, you'll go way up some river and, and with these people say, where are you from? Say, I'm from San Francisco, California. Say, oh, I, I know there. I go there on ayahuasca. Hills, two bridges, that place. Say, that's the place. They say, listen, I know it. But they make bigger claims, you know. I mean, they go to the center of the Milky Way. That was the original claim that had me hot-footing uh, <laughs> down there to, to see what, what was going on. And, you know, they have, a, they have a hidden topology, a shamanic world that is real. They're mapping the same dimension that we're punching through to on DMT. I mean, if that seems strange to you, that there could that half the world could be out of sight, as it were, you have to remember that this October we, disca- we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the discovery of America, or rather we will in 1992. It means as recently as 500 years ago, this half of the planet was unknown to anybody. Well, is there any other, is there any reason that precludes that we could be as ignorant of uh, what's going on? I don't think so. It's just that this new world 
is a new world in the mind. You have to bear in mind when you're thinking about all this that nobody knows what mind is. None of these fancy pants academics or reductionists, no one can explain, for example, how you can look at your open hand, form the notion of closing it into a fist, and have it happen. This is a philosophical miracle from the point of view of modern science. Modern science says that mind cannot influence matter, and yet it's clearly trivial to open and close your fist on decision. Yes, it's trivial, but we have no notion of how this is possible, how will can initiate activity that is transduced down into the mechanical motion of moving bodies around. We don't even know at this late date in the study of the brain whether thought originates in the brain. It's equally plausible to suppose that the brain is some kind of antenna, that it, is, it no more contains the contents of the mind than that a television set contains the contents of the three major networks. It may not work like that. It may be that you know mind is some kind of generalized phenomenon that all life attempts to take part in so that the idea of my mind and your mind may be a, a, a basement of language. There may simply be a mind which we evolve toward an awareness of, and then you get to use part of it the way a user uses a computer network. But it is no more the su- that the sum total of the network is in the brain. Uh, so, And psychedelics address this entirely mysterious area, the area of thought and cognition. I mean, we don't really have good models for what this is, but now we have an excellent tool for deconstructing mind, for watching it go through all kinds of formative flip-flops. I mean, I've seen really what seemed to me amazing things on psychedelics that must bear on the problem of the genesis and stability of meaning. For instance, I've had experiences where, you know how in Times Square there's the flasher that moves along the building that has the latest news? Well, I've seen English text moving along before my eyes, and then it will begin to informationally degrade, like every 20th letter will be transposed or replaced, and then every 10th letter, and then every 5th letter, until finally I'm just watching gibberish flow by. Well, is this a hallucination? Or is this an insight into the mechanics of meaning itself? What is this kind of stuff? And can we take it seriously? The, the problem with studying hallucinogens is only the physiological parameters have been deemed worthy of interest. You know, what does it do to blood pressure? What does it do to your response to these five standardized questions? They don't want to correlate the mass of data represented by individual tales. But when you get a group of people like this together, you know, there is fair confirmation of a pretty outlandish data set 
I mean, how many people here have encountered non-human entities or what appear, appeared to be non-human entities uh, on a psychedelic? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, you know, more than half of us. Well, what do the other half of you think about that? <laughs> I mean... Well, something that uh, at first, second, and third glance does not appear to be at all like Aunt Minnie. In other words, if it's smaller than a bread box or not made of matter and it's talking to you, it's a safe bet, it's a non-human entity of some sort, right? So those of you who haven't had this experience, see... The thing to put across is there's so much loose-headedness in the world, and this is really a stumbling block for psychedelicos because we have people claiming to channel 11,000-year-old Central Asian herders who have a message for mankind, and we have people who are in contact with all kinds of entities with weird names. Uh, And so then the people who don't do psychedelics say, well, this is something It's like channeling or all this other stuff. No, it isn't, because we are not like those people. I mean, I maintain this rigorously, that our bit is intellectual rigor, not airheadedness. We're willing to put as much pressure on the ideas as you want. We just believe in fairness so that it's not ipso facto that there's no such thing as elves. It's that if you think there are elves, prove it to me. Well, then the problem is that the skeptic, the critic, says, well, the notion that there are elves is just, you know, you're sadly deluded. You're living in your own private Idaho. But then you say, well, the proof of the pudding is a 15-minute DMT trip. Are you willing to carry on this criticism after having made the experiment, sir? I mean, we're not like UFO enthusiasts. We're not telling you to stand in cornfields in the dead of night and pray. No, no, this will work. This will work on you, you, the reductionist, you, the doubter, you, the constipated, egomaniacal (laughs) father dominator. It'll work. And then they just, and and they say at that point, you know, you are a menace, <laughs> is, is <laughs> what you are. <laughs> because there's no place else to go with that game. You have to say, you know, you and your ideas are illegal, or they say, well, I guess I'll have to just try it. And that's the point, uh, that's the point where we've come to, is to slowly try and create a consensus. One of the things that Ken said, quoting the teacher, that is very profound is that words are alive and that they multiply. And at every recent workshop I've given, I've talked about the notion of memes. And those of you who have heard it, it's okay to hear it again because this is the political baggage of this trip. It's that, first of all, do you all know what a meme is? A meme is to information as a gene is to genetic information. So the way to think of a meme is it's the smallest unit that an idea can be broken down into without losing its coherency. Ideas are made of memes. And memes, like genes, compete in an environment very much like the environment in which Darwinian natural selection goes on. 
So a new idea uh, is a meme, and it immediately begins to compete with other memes in the ideological environment. And the psychedelic meme is such a meme. Now, the way, one profound way in which memes are like genes is genes can be copied. They can be replicated. They can be passed around. So can memes. When I tell you something which you remember, I have taken a meme, and if 15 of you remember it, I have propagated the meme to 15 new individuals. Each one of them is capable of now passing this meme along, provided they replicate it with sufficient fidelity. And this is a problem of information degradation, that if the meme is not reinforced, it peters out. And someone says, well, what did so-and-so say? And then you get a version that you know, is unrecognizable. I have this experience all the time because people come up to me and say, you know, I thought it was wonderful where you said that... Uh, and then they break out with something not only that I've never said, but that I never could have conceived of and probably don't agree with. So the, keeping the meme straight is very important. And the psychedelic meme is competitive with, uh, you know, the just say no meme, for example. And I believe that on a level playing field, the most open-ended memes will prevail. That what is a good meme? A good meme is a meme that doesn't foreclose its options. Because as soon as you have a closed cycle of explanation, whether it's Egyptian theology or Marxist-Leninism, there's, uh, there's no way out. You know, it's like Gödel's um, uh, incommensurability theorem. No formal system can generate all possible formal statements within the system. In order to keep that option open, you have to preserve a lack of closure. And this is one of the things about the dominator ego that makes it a little like being stupid to be under the influence of the dominator ego. It always searches for closure. It always wants to bring things around and uh, close off the explanatory cycle because it interprets open-endedness as a kind of threat, a feminine uh, uh, upwelling or a boundary-dissolving influence. So it's very concerned to... Uh, generate some kind of closure. That's why we always hear about the unified field theory and the end of history and this and that. These dominator models seek finality. The trick is, you know, to live in the presence of the mystery, not as an unsolved problem, but as a force for personal transformation. By knowing that the mystery exists, we are empowered to relate to it and to nurture the mystery within ourselves. In other words, you don't kill being. Uh, the theory kills. The letter kills. The real facts of, of the stuff of being are locked in the primacy of immediate experience. And this is why the psychedelics are so powerful, because this is what they address. It's not an idea. It's not an ideology. 
It's a transformation of the felt presence of immediate experience. The other two things which do that are birth and death. And then romantic overwhelmment has another part to play. But this is the biggie, the felt, the, the transformation of the felt experience of the self. And by reclaiming that, we dissolve hierarchical structure and we actually emerge into our full uh, expression as human beings. I don't see how this can be done uh, without psychedelics. It's dinner time, but we'll take one question. Yeah, wait. Um, since you've done so much with psychedelics, have you been able to get to some of those states now without the use of psychedelics? The only progress I've made in that area is this glossolalia, which you heard me do this morning. I used to only be able to hear it when I was stoned. And then I used to only be able to do it when I was stoned. And now it's some kind of creode in me. But it doesn't, when I do it for you, it doesn't feel like it feels when I do it on five grams of psilocybin. Generally, I resist the idea that there's some other way to do it. I think it's just a waste of time. If there is some other way to do it, you may be sure it takes a long time and is excruciating. And I would be alarmed if psychedelic phenomena began to intrude into my normal waking existence because it isn't a state of enlightenment or at-one-ment or clarity. Those are lower levels of it. But the full-on thing is so intense that it's very reassuring to know that a substance is doing this and that when the substance goes away, the, the phenomenon will go away. It's so radically different from ordinary reality. I mean, you know, I marvel that we sit in rooms like this and talk about this. I mean, just close your eyes for a moment and imagine what it's like to be smashed. And it's so different from this. And yet we're operating here at a pretty high level of efficiency. Everybody's focused. Half of us at least are awake. But it, it's completely different. And I don't know if you can understand being stoned by talking about it. Uh, you can create a communal empowerment that is permission. But, you know, Plotinus called the mystical experience the flight of the alone to the alone. And uh, there's, there's something to that. Well, I think we bring back maps of the foothills, and that's very useful. But the, the private Mount Everests and Jungfraus that we scale, there's no words for it. I mean, there are no words for it. Every single person who has delved into these regions has gazed upon vistas that no human being had ever seen before or will ever see again. I mean, the universe is that huge that that's possible. Okay, well, I'll just start while we get this thing up and running, and uh, I'll try to make it uh, succinct if I can. The notion here is uh, how this relates to the rest of the workshop has to do with my belief that the really important thing that can be done with psychedelics in a generalized sense is 
that they are uh, inspiration for ideas and that when you sail out into the psychedelic dimension, you're sailing out onto an ocean of ideas and you can lower your nets and, you know, there are many minnows and few whales, but the goal is to bring up something middle-sized that is both astonishing but non-lethal, that you can wrestle into your intellectual life. And so... Over the years, especially since 1971, I have been sort of the victim of an obsessive idea that I have developed to great lengths. And the inspiration for this idea is all this time spent in the psychedelic dimension. Nevertheless, I wouldn't have to say that. I could just claim to be a kind of incipient or... Uh, you know, idiot savant who had dreamed up this thing. But I tell you, it springs from an attempt to understand the psychedelic vision. Um, Generally, the idea is this. It hypothesizes a quality to reality that science has never recognized or discussed. And the quality is called novelty, And novelty is something which knits the world together and creates new emergent properties out of the densification of uh, previous states of existence. Novelty is the force which caused stars to condense out of a primal cloud of energy caused planets or this planet to evolve life, caused life to leave the oceans, caused humanity to emerge out of animal organization, high culture out of previous culture, so forth and so on. And it's a morally neutral force. It isn't good. It isn't bad. It just is a tendency in the universe to conserve complexity and to build ever more complex phenomena by incorporating uh, uh, lower levels of complexity into higher levels of organization. And this is how biology works and it's how the physical sciences work. And I noticed that if you think about the career of novelty as the life of the universe and you see, you know, the primal explosion its condensation into the primitive galaxies, uh, the condens- at lower and lower temperatures, what is happening is more and more complex phenomena become possible because at very high temperatures, atomic particles can't even settle in a, a, to stable orbits around uh, the nucleus and form atoms then eventually atomic chemistry does become possible. At still lower temperatures, the molecular bond can form and life can emerge. And then within the regime of temperatures and pressures that life operates, complexity proliferates very rapidly and, uh, and uh, always conserving itself, always building on the previous levels. So I thought that this was very interesting and that it could be mathematically modeled. 
uh, I noticed that each threshold into deeper novelty takes place ever more rapidly so that novelty in the career of novelty in the world can be said to be speeding up. And this, I take 20th century culture then to be not epiphenomenal, but proof of this theorem that the world is getting spun the, uh, at a higher and higher rate, that novel phenomena, novel effects are proliferating ever more rapidly. Okay, well, so that's the general notion. Well, you know, a fantasy about what, how could we, can we imagine any way to save the world? And just without regard to the rules of reason, particularly, an obvious solution is, why not make everybody an inch and a half high? And this apparently utterly ludicrous idea uh, can be pursued slightly <laughs> further because the creatures in the DMT place are small. That's the main, one of the main features about them. They're small, and when we talked about them, we said it would be parsimonious to suppose that they might be from the future. Well, is it possible that uh, the destiny of the human race is to become an extremely diminutive species that lives in a solid-state matrix inside hills? And that this is where we're going. We're just going into the mountains, sinking away from the surface into the kind of solid-state crystalline matrix that we know the Earth to be. I mean, I, I don't have a lot attached to this. It's sort of charming, sort of bananas. I mean, uh, but the weird feeling of recognition and wonderment that you have in the presence of these DMT creatures may mean that they are a future state of humanity. And this peculiar aura that goes with the experience where you can tell you're underground, you're way, way underground, it's a, it's a gnome, a gnomic existence. And these jeweled machines and toys which they offer you, the mythology of gnomes is that they are master tinkerers. Uh, you know, they build wonderful objects. So, you know, maybe when the world really becomes alarmed, all kinds of possibilities uh, can be found for a sane human future. This is a, maybe a good thing to leave you with or to talk about in the final uh, meeting. You know, we generally pretty much strive for agreement, but there are certain key points where I haven't seen how you can have it both ways. And one is this whole issue of artificiality versus the natural world. How can we imagine a future that both honors the human world and the natural world when there are so many of us? I mean, uh, turning everybody into the size of a fruit fly is one possibility, but uh, we don't, haven't been making a lot of progress along this line of research uh, recently, so it doesn't look like it's a near-term thing. Well, then, the more sophisticated version of that is, can the human entelechy be downloaded into circuitry? 
can we somehow have a so- an existence that we would recognize as an existence without a body? And do we want that? And what is that like? And what does it say about our souls if we choose that? Uh, you know, these are pretty strange questions. Uh, what is human nature in the absolute absence of nature? You know, a very interesting fantasy that you can undertake as a lifetime project, I do this all the time, is to imagine what you would make the world be like if it could be any way you wanted. And, you know, in the first half hour of exercising this fantasy, you realize that every, all our imaginings are conditioned by the constraints of matter. I mean, so you start out and you say, well, if the world could, if I could have anything, oh, I don't know, I guess I'd live in the Frank Lloyd Wright waterfall house and have my Testa Rosa parked outside. And then you realize, you know, that this is a stupid fantasy (laughs) and that you could live in the Leningrad library if you wanted and have your space shuttle parked outside. (laughs) And then you realize that's a stupid fantasy and you... And, and then you realize, you know, that there are no limits, that if mind were not constrained by the rules of physics, we don't know what we are. We don't know the castles that we would build in the air. One of the interesting things about virtual reality is the idea that we're going to be able to wander among the three-dimensional constructions of the imagination with no concern whatsoever for cost-effective use of materials because materials are electrons and light and computer commands. It costs no more to have a a, a gothic cathedral than to have a stucco duplex. So, you know, it's... uh, uh, Well, I think that the future of humanity must be in the imagination. That somehow we, the imagination is a place. It's a world. It's a straw being extended by the overmind to a drowning person. And we have to somehow marshal our wherewithal to march off into the imagination because it's the only safe haven there is. What we are cannot be unleashed on the surface of a planet without destroying that planet. I mean, we've only possessed serious technology for a hundred years. You know, before that, nobody had nothing. I mean, it was a big chore to melt metal and stuff like that. The big guns of being able to push matter and energy around on any significant scale have only been in our hands since 1945. And look, the planet is a complete mess. So uh, if we envision an existence of hundreds of years and any kind of future for ourselves, we're going to have to make some, some major choices. Are we the stewards of the earth to become kind of togged gardeners of a world reborn? Or are we, is it our Viking plunder genes? Do we want to build starships the size of Rhode Island and set out for Alpha Centura with plans to strike deeper into the nearby galaxy? What is it going to be? Or are these fantasies based on driving the future car using only the rearview mirror? Are there sideways options? 
what about these elf fairy other dimensions how seriously can we take that uh what about getting into the imagination through a kind of perfection of yoga? Can all these things that have always been reserved for beady-eyed holy people be democratized so they have impact in everybody's everyday life? Is that a possibility? Um, you know, what has to happen is an abandonment of the idea that only certain classes of solutions will be considered. Like currently in the world, the only class of solutions that can be considered for any problem are solutions which make a buck. That's the main idea. And I already hear that the defense industrial complex is going to transform itself into the industrial detoxification complex. And they will just take those huge military budgets and uh, use all that money now to clean up the mess they made creating the weapons that now have to be destroyed in order to make a sane world. Is this nutty or what? I mean, it's like putting Nazis in charge of a Jewish resettlement program. You can't understand the thinking at all, you know? So... You know, the bad news for people who like to just roll a bomber and put their feet up, which I certainly number myself among them, is that, you know, there's political shit to be shoveled uh, because, and it's mostly informational. It's mostly public relations. This is why, in a way, there's hope because, you know... Uh, you may be the general of the Grand Army, you may have your finger on the thermonuclear button, but you can't get respect at the breakfast table. This is a universal phenomenon. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I'm sure Stalin had to hear terrible things at the breakfast table from his children, you know. And every other dominator is in this position. There's no peace because, you know, you have to have women around to bear you children and then half of these children are women and there's just no escape from it. So, uh... You just lost a groupie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is the great principle which makes change possible, that information travels everywhere. And the best ideas will win if we can level the ideological playing field as the stakes are raised higher and higher, more and more desperate options will be considered. And eventually they will even come to such mad fringes as ourselves and say, you know, well, everything else has failed. What do you people have in mind? Yeah. It seems to me that one of the things that's happening or happening more frequently is that when the masses of people change their mind, is what's happening in Europe right now, that, ma that major changes just happen you know, like overnight. And that that's one of the things that can be happening, that the mind itself changes sufficiently so that it's a, a switchover. Yes, well, one of the most interesting things that I think is going on in the world with all this stuff in Eastern Europe and China and so forth and so on that's not been commented upon very much, and you can see why when I comment on it. Um, all of these changes are driven by huge crowds. 
massive crowds. Never in history have rulers had to face crowds of a million people standing in the center square of the city screaming, resign, resign. Eric Honecker, the, when the notes came out of the East German Politburo meeting, he was all for turning the army loose on these people. And the, the Krenz and the people around him said, Eric, you can't beat up 400,000 people. There's no way to do it. And, uh, you know, somebody said you need 100,000 people to wag the tail of the Bolshevik dog. You need half a million people to kick the Bolshevik dog out of the house. And there are more, do- more than Bolshevik dogs needing to be moved around. I think that this perestroika thing is totally unwelcome in the Western democracies because we're running a skin game. I mean, we could use free elections. Free, free elections are when you don't have federal subsidies for parties which have to have millions of members to qualify. Uh, we could use a renunciation of the leading role of the Republico Democratisti party, which has ruled this country for 200 years with an iron hand. I mean, all of this openness needs to come here. Our premises, uh, we just live in an illusion. I mean, my hope for the Soviet Union is that it will become so free because, you know, there's nothing like a convert to really get obsessive about the pure stuff that they will get so free that they will shame this country. I mean, this country, you know, when you think about what's happening with uh, reproductive freedom, and the notion that we're considering turning half the population into second-class citizens who could be forced by law to face a life-threatening experience that they're not interested in. I mean, this kind of thinking is very bizarre. Uh, Thinking about the future and what the challenges will be and where people like ourselves are going to have to stand in all this Uh, I think, based on the time wave and based on reading the newspaper, that the great stumbling block now in the formation of a sane global agenda is uh, religious fundamentalism. And all three of the monotheistic religions are just guilty, guilty, guilty of this malarkey. I mean, Islamic fundamentalism is going to make enormous gains in the next little while. I see the resonance to the gains of Islam that we looked at last night coming in the fact that if you combine Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Azerbaijan into one country, it will be the world's largest Muslim country. It's almost twice the size of Iran. This is coming as the Soviet Union twists apart, the Islam is going to be the major real estate windfall is going to go in their direction. Uh, uh, Zionist fundamentalism in the Middle East is making it impossible to get a solution there in a situation where four million people are arrayed against 500 million people. From a historical perspective, this is not, a, you know, it's a, it's a potential earthquake in the historical continuum. And, uh, and Christian fundamentalism has completely distorted the social agenda in this country. 
not only on the issue of women's rights and that sort of thing, but I believe this whole drug thing is a reworking of the themes of the Garden of Eden story and that they are you know, just so appalled at the notion because the, somewhere in that movement there must be thinkers and they see this for exactly what it is. It's paganism. It's secular humanism. It's reconnecting to the earth by driving around the entire dominator metaphor. I mean, the peculiar thing about uh, uh, the God of the Old Testament is that of all religious ontologies on earth, this is the most male-dominated. No mother, no sister, no lover, no female offspring. I mean, yes, minor traditions if you happen to be a scholar, but the basic thing is so male. And I think the... uh, you know, the attraction of monotheism is its philosophical parsimony. One God makes sense, has appeal, especially if you're into closure. But the problem is that we image in our personalities the kind of religion that we practice. And imaging ourselves as this omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, centrally controlled entity has given a stamp of cultural approval to the ego that has left us in a very difficult position vis-a-vis the feminine, intuition, the earth, and any kind of ability to feel our situation. I mean, this kind of cultural collapse, if allowed to run to true Armageddon, is death by anesthesia. We cannot feel what is going on. I mean, the tube brings these horrendous images of, you know, pogrom and oppression and lies and toxification and wheedling and weaselness, and we can't grip the emotional levers to become alarmed. And I don't know, maybe this is good. Maybe alarm and panic have no place, that we now have to get very steely-eyed and cold as we move into uh, the real clinches of this thing. But it's in our lifetime. And there's very little talk about this. In capitalism, no planning extends beyond four or five years. In American democracy, no planning extends beyond four years. Everybody has their nose right up against it, and yet they're sailing along at a thousand miles an hour toward a brick wall that's just ahead. So, you know, planning, not necessarily, not necessarily centralized control, but planning, which is what shamanism has always been. I mean, the shaman told the people where the reindeer had moved. He told the people where the game was going to be. He told the people how they should move. He was a futurist, a forecaster, a planner. And this is what we need, this kind of intuition with integrity that isn't depending on statistical models, which are always wrong. I mean, you must have noticed... Everybody here who reads Time magazine or the New York Times or or the London Times, you must have noticed this weird paradox, which is you know more than most of the experts. 
you're better at predicting the price of gold, the movement of the stock market, the political situation in Argentina than the experts. And have you noticed on NPR when they pull together three of these guys, so-and-so, Georgetown University, Sovietologist, so, and they're all saying, and you say, well, these guys, are they're all right. They seem tolerable. Well, they've given their lives to understanding this stuff. And what do you care? And you're a fully p empowered player when you sit down with them. In many cases, you know more than they do. It's because their intuition is totally dead. They can't make sense out of uh, the situation because their way of an analyzing it is flawed. Well, somehow the grassroots good sense the common sense of ordinary people needs to be reflected. And what that means is an abandonment of ideology. Ideology is something imposed from above, and it's a filter. Then only certain solutions are allowed through. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a political agenda. I, th I praise chaos because I think the main thing working to recreate a new world is the impossibility of controlling the old world. I love it when they say it's moving too fast. I love it because I know it means that they cannot get a hold on it. I mean, can you imagine trying to be the CIA and trying to control the situation in East Germany? I mean, you just throw up your hands and walk away which is what we want you to do. And then, lo and behold, it flowers according to its own dynamics. Right now, the world is moving faster than the meddlers can meddle. And uh, that's why it has this wonderfully fecund and optimistic aura to it. And, you know, I'm amazed at the naysayers and the people who say, well, the instability is increasing daily in Eastern Europe. Nonsense. It's not increasing daily. I mean, there have been some tight necks, but uh, I, I think fundamental decisions have been made to uh, let it unravel. Yeah. What seems to happen when political structures dissolve? Well, you're right about the East. I mean, my God, the appetite for mysticism of these Russians is amazing. And, you know, perestroikisti that I am, even I recoiled when he embraced the Pope. I thought, you know, Kmart, it's okay, but the Pope, my God. <laughs> Where does it end? Which I suppose shows that I'm politically constipated, you know? I mean, uh, but, uh, well, I just saw a newspaper this morning, so I've cheated on you. Uh, he who has seen the most recent newspaper <laughs> will win. Um, apparently, Shevardnadze has said it's a mess and they'll just chop off all arms shipments to everybody and everybody else should do the same and that this is the problem, that all these governments are armed to the teeth and enough. So I don't know. Shevardnadze, the foreign minister. Yeah. Well, see, this is another thing that's interesting about virtual reality. Um, you know, it costs now in California basically $200,000 to live in the kind of home that when I was young you bought for $25,000. Uh, but in virtual reality, building costs drop to zero. 
what if we could wean people away from matter? I mean, what if the tackiest thing you could possibly be into would be a physical object, a physical object? And so people would live in white-walled apartments, and no paintings would hang on these walls, and no knickknacks and $6,000 quartz crystals ripped out of Brazil and all of that stuff. And yet, everybody would be, could be as hedonic and as stuff-oriented as they wanted, but none of it would be real. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Talk about a fantasy world. Uh, <laughs> that $200,000 house in California that Terrence just mentioned is uh, most likely going for over a million dollars today, uh, which is why I don't own a house. But when I lived in Texas and in Florida, I did own houses, and uh, you know what? It's a lot less stressful to be a renter, so I don't mind at all. A few minutes ago, when Terrence said that he who gets hold of the first newspaper rules, <laughs> well, what was the first thing that you thought of? Yeah, why didn't he just use his phone to check the net? Well, the talk that we just listened to was recorded 18 years before the iPhone was even invented. In fact, this talk even came three years before the World Wide Web came into being. To tell the truth, uh, I still miss those lazy Sunday mornings when it took hours to get through the morning paper. Coming from a Chicago-area family, uh, Sunday mornings always included three papers, the Daily News, the Sun-Times, and the Tribune. And uh, even as an adult, it was the Sunday morning comic strips that I always read first. Well, that's a world that is no longer available to us. Uh, We now live in a completely different time, and to make our way, we most definitely need completely different attitudes than we had back then. At least I do. So, what do you think about Terrence's analysis that the opinions of our political experts are flawed because their intuition is dead? Well, I think that a perfect example of this is the fact that not one, not a single political expert one year ago predicted the rise of Donald Trump. And as we listen to political experts from the two main parties uh, debating the future, we all can tell that they simply don't have a clue. They keep arguing about ways that the members of their two parties are going to swing in November, but they completely ignore the fact that the two main parties combined don't even number one half of the eligible voters. And uh, the reason for this is that the majority of people in this country are totally fed up with both of their parties, so... Something new is in the wind, and uh, current analysis isn't worth a hoot anymore. Actually, uh, it doesn't really matter who wins the U.S. presidency in November in regards to the uh, social upheaval that will follow, because I don't think either side is going to go down gracefully this time. I'm really afraid it's going to get messy. Now, did you notice that around 38 minutes into this talk, a woman asked a question after first referring to what was then the fact that in Europe a lot of people were changing their minds. Now keep in mind that this talk was recorded in 1989, which was when the Berlin Wall was finally opened. Now today, it seems that a lot of people are changing their minds about the European Union. How long do you think it'll be before people in the States begin to change their mind about this union of 50 somewhat independent states that uh, all have varying degrees of antagonism between one another? 
I don't think that anyone knows the answer to that question. However, uh, I also don't know any historian who is willing to say that the United States of America is a union that will continue on for another 500 years. Something's got to give eventually. So what did you think about Terrence's speculation that we may be going into the mountain, as he described the possibility of becoming a little person in a solid-state matrix after we die? Well, I think that he was just throwing this out there as food for thought. But just this morning, I read an interesting news account that uh, may shed some new light on it. Apparently, uh, archaeologists have discovered that the Great Pyramid at Palenque is built over a spring and has a tunnel leading underground. The article also said that new interpretations of the inscriptions on the sarcophagus in the temple indicate that the dead king was to make his way into the underground, which of course brings to mind the Greek myths of Persephone. So it looks like there may still be a lot that we don't yet know about the Mayans, so Stay tuned, as the old radio guys used to say. We also just heard Terence say that each descent into novelty takes place with increasing frequency. So I wonder what he would say about today's world conditions, uh, not to mention the very novel politics taking place in the States. These plunges into new and ever more complex forms of novelty, uh, well, they seem to me to be following the trajectory of a rapidly dribbling basketball. Now, before I go, I want to report that I've been very remiss this year in not mentioning the fact that our longtime friend of the salon, Zach Leary, has his own podcast. Not knowing that, in my case, is a result of my dropping out of Facebook, where I often exchange messages with Zach. So I guess that uh, there still is some news that the Facebook audience gets, and uh, which I seem to miss. Sorry about that, Zach. (laughs) But the fact is that Zach's podcast is already a year old, and he's put out a podcast every week, which I'm here to tell you is much more difficult than you might imagine. His podcast is called It's All Happening with Zach Leary, and uh, now that I've listened to his last few podcasts, I plan on starting at the beginning and catching up. In fact, uh, if you want to give it a listen yourself... You may want to begin with his podcast number 45, which features Duncan Trussell as his guest. Since I know that there are a lot of Joe Rogan fans here in the salon, I assume that also goes for Duncan Trussell fans, of which I'm one myself. Now, Zach has done a really great job of creating a very professional program, and, uh, and he also happens to have one of the best radio voices that I've heard. As you know, uh, we've featured Zach's dad, Dr. Timothy Leary, here in the salon on quite a few occasions. In fact, the Leary Trust has not only allowed me to podcast Dr. Leary's audio works, they also gave the salon a very generous donation to keep us going during one of our more difficult periods. During all that time, Zach has been a really good friend to us here in the salon, and I hope that we can repay the favor by following his podcast as well. And I'll put a link to his podcast website in today's program notes, which uh, you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. And uh, so in closing, I thought I'd like to read once again something that Dr. Leary said, and uh, which many of us have repeated over and over. At least we've repeated the last three words in this quote that I'm going to read for you right now. Timothy Leary once said, Admit it. You aren't like them. You're not even close. You may occasionally dress yourself up as one of them, watch the same mindless television shows as they do, maybe even eat the same fast food sometimes. But it seems that the more you try to fit in, 
the more you feel like an outsider watching the normal people as they go about their automatic existences. For every time you say club passwords like have a nice day and weather's awful today, huh? You yearn inside to say forbidden things like tell me something that makes you cry or what do you think deja vu is for? Face it, you even want to talk to the girl in the elevator. But what if the girl in the elevator and the balding man who walks past your cubicle at work are thinking the same thing? Who knows what you might learn from taking a chance on conversation with a stranger? Everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. Trust your instincts. Do the unexpected. Find the others. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.